Well, it's great to see all of you here today. We're glad that you've joined us for worship and study in the Word. Before we uh, delve into today's message, uh, I have to confess I wasn't paying real close attention at the beginning of the service. So I apologize if John did announce this, but I didn't hear it. Uh, tonight uh, would be the third installation of our missions workshop. We are canceling that for tonight. Uh, we've had two really great sessions and had great participation. Thanks for everyone for coming out. Uh, but I uh, talked with Rusty today and with the storms and different things that they're forecasting up that way. I uh, didn't really want to put him in a predicament of driving back. And so he's going to come and be with us at a later date, probably right at the, uh, at the beginning of December, and going to cover the topic of international missions and how we as a church are to approach that. And so we will see him again. And, uh, but again, thanks everybody for being a part of that. If you have been here for one of the last two sessions, you can look around and be nosy for a minute and kind of peek around if there was someone sitting at your table that maybe you don't see here today and you have their number or email or have them as a friend on social media, maybe shoot them a message and let them know not to show up tonight. And so, because we will not be here. They're gonna be on their own in the thunderstorms and tornadoes if they show up here. All right, so that's, that's the plan. No, no missions workshop tonight. 2 Kings chapter 3. Uh, today I want to speak with you about a passage that really spoke to me this week. You know, sometimes this is hit and miss. Sometimes the best thing I can preach about is the thing that really God has impressed on my heart and, and uh, it hits a home run and all of that. And sometimes I strike out with that deal. And I think when I get done with it, I think ah, maybe the Lord just had that for me. But I want to share with you 2 Kings chapter 3. A message that has moved my heart this week and about a topic that is really right at the very center of the biblical message and the topic is about faith all of the Bible our Lord Jesus in particular commend faith as essential listen to this what we're talking about today is not peripheral it's not an extra, it's not an add-on, it's not whipped cream and a cherry on top. It is the meat, it is the substance, it's at the very heart of what this whole book is about. And that is about faith. It is essential. Faith is essential to living a godly life. Faith is integral to experiencing the blessing of God in your life. For the Bible says in the book of Hebrews... Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without this faith, it's impossible to please God, really to know Him in any real personal way. Faith is a catalyst that brings us into the joyful reality of seeing God do amazing things. I'm reminded of the story found in, I believe it's Luke 17, also found in Matthew's Gospel, where the disciples had been sent out to do ministry in the power and authority of Jesus there were certain things that Jesus told them they would be able to do and here's the deal they failed at some of it they did some of it right and some of it they failed and they were really shook up and after they failed they come to Jesus and and I said you know what's the problem what's the deal and Jesus tells them something about faith the importance, the necessity. And he says this, you would have been able to accomplish that and really so much more if you even had faith 
as a grain of mustard seed. And then he proceeds to tell them this, and you'll be familiar with this. If you had faith, even the size of a grain of mustard seed, this little bitty seed, if you had faith, you would be able to say to this mountain, be moved into the sea, and it would be moved. Now, we could get into what all that means, but here's the thing. Faith enables us to experience what God expects of us and to do what he wants us to do. Faith changes things. It is essential to the empowerment of God. If you want to see spiritual change and renewal, revival in your own life, maybe this is the place that it begins to ask, am I believing? Do I have biblical faith? Hey, let me give you a description, not a definition, but a description of biblical faith. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes of the faith, said, you know, so often preachers just totally convolute the matter when they try to define faith. It's so simple. Sometimes the simplest things in life are the hardest to define. So I want to give you a little description of faith. Here you go. And then we're going to look at it in a story and see it embodied. Faith is personal confidence in God, in God's Word, and God's promises. Faith is personal confidence in God, His Word, and His promises. Faith is relying on God rather than my own ability and my own knowledge to the extent that I'm ready and willing to obey Him. And when I obey Him, I become a recipient of His grace. So faith is a personal confidence in God, in His Word, and in His promises. And that confidence causes us to lean into Him, to trust Him, to rely on Him, to do what He says He will do. It looks beyond my own incapabilities, my own weaknesses. It looks beyond what I can see in the natural, and it sees things that I can only see with the eyes of faith. Hey, listen to this. Faith is a hopeful certainty. A hopeful certainty that God will do what he's promised. So a little bit of description of faith. Now we're going to see this played out in a great but a little bit obscure Old Testament story found in 2 Kings chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles or your electronic Bibles, Get off your email and off of Facebook, okay? And turn, go over to 2 Kings chapter 3. I bet you've not read this story very much. It's probably going to be a new one to you. A great Old Testament story that illustrates the embodiment of this living by faith in just the very real circumstances of life. Now, before we read it, let me just tell you a little bit about the background that leads up to where we're going to dive in. 2 Kings 3 Verse 10, the background of the story and the players. Now, there is a king of Israel, and this guy's name is Joram. There's different uh, spellings of it, in, uh, depending on what translation you have, but Joram is the king of Israel. He's the son of Ahab and Jezebel. All right, They have died, and now he is ruling and reigning in the northern tribes of Israel. At this point in history, Israel is really divided into two nations kind of the north and the south. Israel, the northern tribes, the ten, their capital is in Samaria, and that's where this Joram, the king of Israel, is ruling from. A little bit about this guy. If this was an old western, he'd be wearing black. All right? So just think, Joram is the guy with the black hat. It says of him in this passage that Joram did evil in God's sight. But, so, so he, he's the guy wearing the black hat, 
But he's a guy, maybe you kind of want to like just a little bit. You know, he's got a little bit of a Clint Eastwood edge to him or, or John Wayne in one of his bad roles or something like that. You know, you kind of want to like him, but it says he did evil in the sight of God, but he wasn't as bad as his parents. <laughs> he wasn't as evil as they were. They, he cleaned up a few things, but not everything. Man, he's not a great king, but not as bad as the one before him. Isn't that like politics? It's like you, we talk about all the time, the lesser of two evils. Instead of a good one, it's just this idea that, you know, he's not as bad as that one. He's not as bad as the one before him. Maybe we're making progress, but the guy, he's wearing black. He's, he's evil. He did evil, but he's not as bad as he could be. All right, so that's the king of Israel. That's Joram. The king of Judah is a guy, and you'll know this name, Jehoshaphat. You, you know, jumping Jehoshaphat. Yeah, that's this guy. He's the king of Judah. Now, he's in the southern tribes, southern Israel. He's ruling and reigning in uh, Judah. He's been the king now for 12 years when Joram becomes king in Israel. Now, they're divided, but there is still a sense of kinship. It's kind of like us with people out on the west coast, right? I'm sorry if you're from out there, but I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, we're not really the same. We're in a different place. There's a lot of beliefs that we don't hold together, but now if someone else comes picking on us, we're going to unite and we're going to fight together. It's a little bit of that kind of deal, but you've got Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah, and he's a good king. He's wearing the white hat, all right? This guy's a godly king, He's a good guy. And then there's Misha, the king of Moab, a little outlying country. Misha is a sheep breeder, all right? And he's been providing 100,000 lambs and the wool from 100,000 rams to Israel, all right, to the northern tribes as tribute. So they've been conquered, and they're under their authority, if you will. They've made a peace treaty, and the terms of peace is, all right, Misha, you Moabites have got to provide a lot of meat. All right, we want 100,000 lambs and the wool from 100,000 rams. And that, if you provide that, then we can get along. You know, they've got a trade agreement going on. And now, Joram is ruling and reigning in Ahab's place. And Misha says, eh, I'm done with that. I'm tired of that. And so he rebels. It's treachery. He doesn't follow the agreement. And so he doesn't send the lambs. He doesn't send the wool. He has rebelled. I suspect it made Joram really mad. I, we don't know exactly why, but probably food shortage coming up. All right. Probably a little bit. You think about wool providing their clothing. So you've got textile that, you know, the, the um, aisles at Walmart clothing are now bare because this guy is not providing the wool. And so here's what Joram does. He says, I'm going to go fight against this guy. We're going to go ahead and attack him. He broke the treaty and he sends a message up to Jehoshaphat and he says, will you join me? Will you gather up your army and we're going to go together and we're going to fight against this guy. We are going to whip his tail. All right, he, he's broken the agreement and Jehoshaphat's like, yeah, sure. It's the off season, don't have much to do. What's the game plan? That's what he asked him. What are, how are we going to go about the battle? Let, let's do it. And so he says, Joram says, we're going to ease up. We're not, we're not going to come full frontal attack. We're going to ease around through the wilderness of Edom. We're going to sneak up on this cat and we are going to whip his tail. He says, sounds like a plan. So they go 
up into the wilderness of Edom. And apparently, it doesn't say it directly, but you pick up on it. Apparently, they talked the king of Edom into joining. So now there's three kings, three different armies. They're going after Moab, and they're going to attack Misha and his people. Well, the problem is the wilderness there in Edom is a desert. There's no water, and they've got I suspect probably horses, donkeys, that says they've got livestock of various kinds. So they're, you know, beasts of burden that are carrying their supplies. There is no water in the land and they don't have anything to drink. And this goes on now for seven days. Seven days without water for their livestock or for their men. And they're in trouble. I don't know about you. I don't know that I don't think I've ever gone one day without water. I cannot imagine marching in the desert without water for seven days. Day two, day three. Surely there's something up there. Surely there's an old well that we could get a drink from. Nothing, nothing. And they keep on. They don't have the sense to turn back. And at this point, day seven, it's do or die. We've got to have water. And so they are stuck. Now let's pick up the story. Second Kings 3 Verses 10 through 18. And we're thinking about what faith looks like. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the kings, uh, king of Israel's servants answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said the word of the Lord is with him so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him now Elisha said to the king of Israel what do I have to do with you go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother and the king of Israel said to him no for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab Elisha said as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you or see you. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. For the Lord, or for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water so that you shall drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. Let's stop right there for just a minute. Let's think about this story as the embodiment of faith. I'm going to tell you four things about faith that I believe that we need to see if we're going to live a life of faith. Four realities about faith. Number one, the focus of faith is God himself. The focus of our faith is God himself. We're not focusing on faith. We're focusing on where faith leads us. And it leads us to God himself. And where we see that is, Jehoshaphat, he says this. He says, you know, we're in a predicament. And what we need is not to have a committee meeting. What we need is a word from the Lord. We need discernment from God. We need God's word. Now, Joram, being the encouraging guy that he is, he says, I've already figured it out. Here's what the Lord is doing. He's brought us here to die. He's going to turn us over to the king of Moab and we all three, all three kings and all the armies, we're going to die. Now that's a logical conclusion. If you just look at the situation, 
But not Jehoshaphat. He says, no, I want to know from God. What is God doing so that we can discern how to move forward? And what he says is, is there not a prophet of the Lord here? And they say, yeah, there's this cat, Elisha. He just happens to be up here. And so they go and they meet with Elisha. Now you'll remember Elisha is the prophet who is the successor of the great prophet Elijah. And this guy has a double portion of the anointing that Elijah had. He's done many great things and the word of the Lord is with him. And Elisha says, I tell you what, do Bring me the worship band. Bring me a guitar player. Bring me a minstrel, a musician, and let him play. And maybe the word of the Lord will come to me. And so that's what they do. And the word of the Lord comes to Elisha. But listen to this before we move ahead in the story. Let's make sure that we see that the life of faith is about seeking God. Seeking God. It's not seeking popular opinion. It's not... A majority vote. It's not looking at the pollsters. It is about seeking God. The first evidence and the first exercise that we are living a life of faith is that we come before the Lord and seek His Word and His wisdom. That's what faith looks like first and foremost. Faith is not this. Faith is not going off half-cocked hair-brained, coming up with a brilliant idea on our own and saying, let's do this crazy thing and hope that God will bless it. Faith begins by seeking the Lord. It's rooted in the wisdom of God. Hey, listen to this. There's such a thing in the Bible that's called saving faith. Saving faith is seeking God to be rescued from our sin, from sure death. Saving faith has as its object and focus God in the person of Jesus Christ. Not just some idea, not some theological construct, not some set of doctrines. Faith is focused on God. Saving faith is focused on Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the Bible says that all the fullness, all the reality, all the attributes and characteristics of God are evident in the person of Jesus Christ. And so one of the most important things that I could say to you today is all of your eternity hinges on whether you have sought the face of God and come to faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Trusted what Jesus has done for you to save you from your sins. He died on the cross for your sins. So faith focuses on God himself. It doesn't focus on me. It doesn't focus on a set of rules. It focuses on the Lord. And that is so important. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time that you just took time in your life to stop and to seek the face of God? To ask God, God, what would you have me to do about this? God, what would you say about this situation in my life? Have you sought the Lord in those situations? Because faith focuses on God himself. The second thing that's really important to faith is we see the foes of faith. That's F-O-E-S. Now, are you artsy ladies? That's not F-A-U-X. That's not foe faith. The foes of faith, the antagonists, the enemies of faith, we see the things that would destroy our faith if we let them. What we learn is that faith can persist in the midst of cynicism and pesticism. 
Here's Joram. Here's what he says. Here's what the Lord's doing. He's brought us here in the wilderness to kill us. It's the end of us. Moab is going to destroy us. But the Lord has an entirely different message. The Lord says, God has indeed brought you to this place. But the Lord's message is, he's going to rescue you. And he sends a word to Elisha and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to dig a bunch of ditches and trenches all through this valley. This is taking place in a valley, by the way. I want you to dig ditches and trenches in this valley. And I'm going to do something in your midst. And I can just hear Joram, who is the pessimist. He is the cynical guy. He's the guy that's not going to believe anything that the Lord says. He's already made his mind up. He says, the Lord's going to kill us here. And now what you want me to do is dig my own grave? Nope, nope, not going to do it. I'm not going to dig a grave. We're going to die here. Hey, listen, folks. There are always, always enemies and antagonists and those who would speak against what the Lord says. And sometimes they're even in what we might consider our inner circle. And that's a painful lesson to learn. But I can tell you that that is often true. That when the Lord calls you to step out and follow him and to believe him, and let's just put it in the context of saving faith. Let's say that you have decided to give your life to Jesus, to trust him, to save you. And now you're becoming a follower of Jesus. I'll tell you, you won't even walk out that door and you'll start getting text messages. You'll see things on Facebook. You will hear messages. You will have friends. You might even have people who are nearby right here in this very room who would try to talk you down from being a religious zealot or for thinking that somehow Jesus is the only way. There are always those who will stand against what the Lord says and what he's trying to do. And we see that in Joram. But Jehoshaphat wants to hear from the Lord and he gets a message from the Lord. I tell you, one of the great ways to think about this whole story is just the hopeless and the hopeful. The hopeless and the hopeful. The optimist and the pessimist. Joram is a naysayer. It's negativity. And Elisha brings a word of hope. Did you know that Christians should be people of great hope? One of the things that we see is churches are struggling. And I've even talked about this quite a bit uh, from the pulpit. Churches in our day and age in America, many of them struggling. And there are a lot of people saying things like this. The church is dead. The church is dying. There's no hope. You might as well just bury it. You know what? Jesus says something quite different. He says, I will build my church. And as long as Jesus is alive and ruling, the church will persist. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the church will go through times in the wilderness. I think there will be periods of dry and thirst where we cry out to the Lord to seek his direction. But the church will persist. And when the church seeks to move forward, here's what you can bet. You can bet there will be people, and sometimes even from our own midst and our own circle, who will try to stop the work of God and to speak against what God is saying. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because they've not sought the Lord themselves or something like that. But you will have pessimists and cynics speak against what the Lord has for you, and we will experience that in the church. So there are foes to our faith.
Let's look at the third thing. We see faith in the face of reasonable questions and uncertainty. Here's one of the things as I was studying this, I realized God did not tell them everything he was going to do. He said, you're going to drink. I'm going to send water. And it's going to be captured in the ditches that you dig. But he didn't tell them exactly how it was going to go. And I, I read this story and I thought, well, what does he say? He says, it's not going to rain. That's what he says. What it's not going to do. It is not going to rain, but you are going to have water. I'm going to send water. You know, anytime the Lord is doing something and calls us to step out in faith, I believe he'll tell us enough to allow us to move forward, to take a step. At different points in my life, and I don't know about you, but I could say, you know, sometimes God gives me like a vision for out here quite a bit. Maybe there's two or three steps, and I'm, I'm confident that that's the direction I'm going. But sometimes it's just do the next thing. Do the next thing. Take the next step. And leaves us scratching our head about, well, how's that going to work? How are you going to do that? Hey, folks, that's why it's called faith. He doesn't always tell us everything, but he tells us enough. And so here's what's happened. Elisha says, I've got a word from the Lord. You're supposed to dig ditches and trenches. Now, you're not going to see a cloud. You're not going to feel the wind. How many of y'all, when you woke, woke up this morning, I mean, you'd already seen the forecast, but the wind's blowing. It's a little bit weird outside. The temperature's changing. And you're, you're going, I know what's going to happen. I know what this is going to bring. It's going to bring rain. It's a telltale sign. But Elisha says, you're not going to see that. There is not going to be any outward sign that there is water on its way. But what I'm telling you to do is dig the ditches in faith. Dig the ditches. So here is Jehoshaphat. And here's what he says. All right. Now you guys, what I want you to do, I want everybody to grab a pick, grab a shovel, and we're going to dig ditches all across this valley. And you know, you think about this. They got the message, just those three kings from Elisha. They didn't all hear it. And so it starts going through the camp, reverberating. Yeah, shouts. Those old dry, parched mouths, their tongues are probably swollen. They're so thirsty. They say, we're going to dig these ditches because the Lord says it's going to rain. And Jehoshaphat says, no, it's not going to rain. Do what? It's not going to rain. He says, it is not going to rain. The Lord didn't say it was going to rain. Exactly. And I can just hear the soldiers and the army going, well, now, now before we dig, what exactly did the Lord say? Mm. Well, he said it wasn't going to rain. And you can just see the captains and the corporals and the lieutenants all the way back to the privates going, let's get this straight. We're thirsty. We want water. You want us to dig ditches to catch the water? But the Lord told us it's not going to rain. Yet not only that, he said it wasn't even going to be a cloud in the sky. Okay, all right. So, so why are we digging? What are we going to do? Is there going to be a, a spring bubble up from below? I don't know. The Lord just said to dig the ditches. But it's not going to rain. And I can just see myself going, man, I'm really thirsty and hot. I'm about to die. And you say it's not going to rain, but you want me to dig a ditch. And I'm already parched. And this ground is probably like dust. And that's hard digging. Mm, I don't know if I'm with you, Jehoshaphat. I don't know if I'm in on that. And here's what I would just say to you. God doesn't always.